This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. Do you reckon teachers need a bit of a rebrand? Like, do you think the way that teachers are portrayed in shows, in movies, as, I don't know, villains, losers, really negative tropes, do you think that's impacting who wants to take up the job? Because later we're going to be exploring this idea of raising the status of teachers in society. How important do we think that is? How do we actually do it? Also coming up, there's been a bit of an update in the immigration law story out of Canberra that you've been hearing about over the past few weeks. We're going to have the latest on that. First, though. Hack. The federal government is banning the importation of disposable single-use vapes from January 1. On Triple J. Yeah, we've been hearing a lot about the government cracking down on vaping, and you've seen the headlines. There are more out today. Disposable vapes will be banned from coming into Australia from next year. And those who are importing therapeutic vapes, like the ones to help you quit smoking, will need a licence. Now, the government's announced today that these changes are going to happen pretty soon. Some of the bans will come into force in just over a month. In a minute, we're going to speak to Health Minister Mark Butler about how this is actually going to work. But first, here's Angel Parsons with a bit of an update. So we've been hearing for a while about how vaping has become one of the biggest public health issues of our time. That teenagers are taking up vaping to deal with stress. Which Hailed as safer than cigarettes, then hijacked by an insidious black market that... A single vape uh, can deliver up to the equivalent nicotine of 400 cigarettes. Um, vaping might actually increase their levels of depression or depressive symptoms over time as well. In the first few months of this year, Cancer Victoria found one in five people aged between 18 to 24 were vaping. And we know people a lot younger than that are doing it too. Doctors have been wanting the government to do more, like Michael Bonner from the Australian Medical Association. This is a highly sophisticated nicotine delivery device to get young people addicted uh, to smoking with flavours and slick marketing that we need to get some control over. Earlier this year, the federal government flagged that it would bring in a whole bunch of new rules. And we found out today, some of those rules will be coming into effect pretty soon in just over a month's time. I'm really pleased to see that a firm timeline has been announced. Given how easy it is to buy a vape right now, it might surprise you to hear it is actually illegal to buy or use a nicotine vape without a prescription. So the government's released a plan on how it'll limit vaping to people with a prescription for real. From January, importing disposable single-use vapes will be banned. And there'll be a new process for nurse practitioners and doctors to prescribe vapes. The idea being it'll improve access to therapeutic vapes. The prescription model is focused on smoking and vaping cessation. So it's not supposed to be about long-term continued use. Those people who are recreationally vaping, we have to move them into a medical model to um, support getting them off nicotine and you know reducing their addiction. Then some other things will change from March. Importing refillable, non-therapeutic vapes will be banned and you won't be able to personally import therapeutic vapes from overseas either. Border Force will get an extra 25 mil to enforce all this and importers of therapeutic products will need a permit. And if you do get a prescription, expect the flavours to be limited and the vape to come in really plain pharmaceutical packaging. The government will also have to bring in new laws to prevent vapes being advertised, made and supplied here in Australia. Hack on Triple J. 
Angel Parsons with that update. I want to dig into what all this actually means, though, how it's going to work. And we've got the Health Minister, Mark Butler, with us now to answer some of those questions. G'day, Minister. Thank you so much for coming on Hack. My pleasure, Dave. It's been illegal for Australians to buy or import nicotine vapes for a couple of years now, but I think it's fair to say they're more available than ever before. What makes you think that this span on all disposable single-use vapes is going to work? Well, you're right. They're, they're very readily available um, and they've become a really serious public health issue, particularly for young Australians. When I say young Australians, I'm talking about kids in primary schools as much as high schools and high school graduates. Um, the problem we've got is that there's this massive loophole around the current laws. Um, to his credit, the former Health Minister, Greg Hunt, wanted to do something serious about this area, but he was rolled by his own party room. Uh, who frankly I think was lobbied by the tobacco industry. And so they left this big loophole that allows people or companies to import vapes pretending that they don't have nicotine in them. So when I did, I did a thing with Border Force down in Sydney, they'd, they'd seized 35 tonnes of vapes that had been imported into the country, almost all of which either had no label on them or were actually labelled non-nicotine or no nicotine. But when we take them off to a lab and test them, overwhelmingly, well more than 90% of them have often very dangerous levels of nicotine in them. So what, so what you're saying is you're closing the border to all vapes. I yep. mean, the border's closed to a lot of things, really, when you think about it. Illicit drugs, for instance, they're still readily available, being widely used in Australia. Isn't this just going to maybe promote organised crime getting involved, create a bigger black market than there already is? Well, organised crime is already involved. I had a meeting with all of the police commissioners <clears throat> last week, along with police minister colleagues. We had a briefing from them about the fact that outlaw motorcycle gangs, other organised crime gangs, are already very heavily involved in uh, the vape market. It's a, it's a big source of revenue for them. But equally, as you say, Dave, I'm, you know, I didn't come down in yesterday's shower. I know when you prohibit the imports of things like this, some other product will get through. We've seen that with, with import pr prohibitions on illicit drugs over very many years. The challenge we've got, though, is currently they are so readily available, particularly to kids. Um, this was a product, we have to remember, it was a product that was sold as an idea to communities right around the world, including here in Australia, as a therapeutic good, that is like a medicine-type product, that would help hardened smokers kick the habit. So yeah. smokers who'd been smoking for decades, middle-aged and older, who couldn't kick the habit with the use of Nicorette patches and other smoking cessation products like that, would get some benefit from this new modern therapeutic product. But a few years down the track, what we've actually learned is that's not, that's not the game at all. What the, what the tobacco industry has done here is tried to find a product that will recruit a whole new generation of nicotine addicts. Um I'm just wondering, though, Minister, how do you police this, though? Because I could walk into a store and buy a nicotine vape right now, even though it's against the law. Well, and that's right. That, and that's largely because of this massive loophole, which means they've flooded in from overseas. And it's very, very difficult for health authorities uh, and other authorities, including the border force at the border, to police because there's this loophole that means when they seize a vape, they have to send it off to a lab and get the vape tested to see whether it's legal or illegal. 
What I'm doing with the regulation will be put in place on the 1st of January is to do away with this ridiculous distinction between nicotine and non-nicotine vapes. It's actually not a real-world distinction at all. It's simply a cover for these gangs to, uh, to import vast amounts of nicotine vapes, pretending they have no nicotine in them, and then selling them at vape stores, at convenience stores, at tobacconists and all the rest. Just to be clear, what happens if you're in <clears throat> possession of a vape? If you're a young person listening now, is there a penalty if you're caught with a vape? No. Absolutely not. We've been very clear. This is not about imposing penalties on users. This is about cracking down on those who import the product and then sell the product. And what are the penalties going to be for those who sell them? Like, do we have any... Is it going to mean jail time for these people? <clears throat> so we, we will publish that regulation uh, very shortly and that will set out the penalties. I can say there's a significant increase in the penalties against the existing regulations because we know we've got to work hard to disincentivise this. This is... This at the moment is a pretty low risk, high reward market for not just for the, the gangs that really drive the market, the tobacco industry that's largely behind it because they've got a strategy of recruiting a new generation to nicotine addiction, knowing that they'll then move into cigarettes. And we're already seeing that among, among younger, young Australians. We want to send a very clear message to those stores who are selling vapes now that this loophole is going to be closed. Okay. Uh, we're not going to put up with it anymore. Now, Is Dave, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm in the parliament and they've just called a division that I've got to rush off for. I can hear the I'm, bells. I can, oh, hear, can the hear the bells. bells. They do this without giving us any notice. I apologise so much um, to your listeners. I was looking forward to being able to have more of a conversation, but I've got to rush off and exercise my democratic obligations. Look, Minister, we'll definitely be having you on again to talk about this. Thank you very much for joining us today. We've got a few more questions. We'll make sure we get back to you with those. Thanks for coming on, Hack. Terrific. Thanks, Dave. We've got some messages coming through from people. Someone says, I'm not sure if we can do anything while Big Tobacco is pushing their fix. Look across the ditch in New Zealand and how they've reversed their generational ban on smoking. That's a big decision that was made uh, over the past couple of days. Someone else says, smoked cigarettes for years, vapes got me off them. My health has improved so much. We're going to, uh, you know, hear from a lot of people who've used uh, vapes to get off cigarettes. And of course, you're still going to be able to get a prescription to use a therapeutic vape. But there's been a lot of discussion about uh, if that's going to be enough, because we know that doctors have not really been prescribing a lot of these uh, therapeutic vapes. So the government's announced changes in terms of how uh, people who need vapes to maybe help them get off nicotine will be able to access them. Someone else said, Says, vapes won't stop being sold and used, just like all things illegal. And Dane from Crescent Head says, agree with the ban of vapes, but the funds need to go towards the disposal of e-vapes. Millions per year all going to landfill. Use this money to rectify the position. Uh, someone else is saying, oh, as if all the dodgy shops are not just going to pre-order a bulk load of disposable vapes just before the ban comes into effect. Well, you heard the minister say there that it's going to be illegal to see sell them, just how all of this is going to be enacted, how it's going to be policed, uh, the resourcing that's going to be required to do this. They're all questions that we've got for the health minister. We're going to make sure we do get in touch with Mark Butler again, but for now we'll move on. Hack. The High Court has published the reasons for its ruling on indefinite immigration detention. On Triple J. 
Yeah, a big court ruling was handed down earlier this month from Australia's High Court. We told you about it at the time. It meant Australia couldn't have people in immigration detention indefinitely. And it sparked a political blow-up in Canberra. The government writing up new laws to be imposed on people who've been released from detention because of this decision. Well, now the High Court has released its full reasons for why it made the ruling. So what does it all mean? Let's find out. Hacks Canberra reporter Shalala Madora joins us now. G'day, Shalala. Thanks for coming on. Hello, Dave. Lovely to be here. Can you remind us why this case is so important? Yeah, so basically this case was about overturning 20 years of precedence when it came to laws relating to indefinite detention. It was based on the case of this man who was a Rohingya man. Uh, Rohingyas are an ethnic minority in Myanmar and they often aren't recognised as Myanmar citizens. So he was in Australia and committed a sex, um, a, a crime against a child, a sex crime against a child and was convicted and jailed. And in that time it was found that we couldn't send him back to Myanmar because he wasn't recognised and other countries wouldn't take him. So the end result of that was this man was in indefinite detention. He had no end in sight when it came to how long he was in detention. He brought this case up in the High Court saying, actually, that's that should be illegal, and he won that case. Now, that caught the government quite off guard because, like I said, for 20 years they'd lived off this assumption that they could keep people in immigration detention for quite a while, and they rushed in this tranche of laws about what to do with this group of people who would soon be released. And up to date, we've had about 140 people released. So what did the High Court rule? So in a nutshell, the all seven justices ruled that it's not the government's place to put people in detention. When it comes to things like punitive measures, keeping people behind bars, that is the role of the courts and the constitution spells that out really clearly. It also ruled that immigration detention shouldn't be used as a punitive measure. It shouldn't be used as a punishment against people. It is and has always been designed to sort of be a stopgap, you know, like either a place before people get a visa granted to Australia or before um, they are deported. So in a nutshell, it basically said the principles in the constitution don't align with what has been happening. So what's this going to mean for the government's new laws that have been introduced? It's still a bit unclear, Dave, because yesterday the government tried to introduce even further laws to the ones that they had introduced shortly after this case, um, basically to deal with this 140 or so people who have been released. They included putting penalties into law for um, people if they breach visa conditions and, and really strengthening the laws around the use of things like ankle bracelets and curfews. Now, the coalition rejected those laws. They didn't vote for them, saying those laws didn't go far enough. What they wanted the government to do is adopt what's called preventative detention orders. That means putting people behind bars before they've committed a crime if they pose a risk. Um, constitutional law experts are, are a little bit mixed on what that could mean. They, they've basically said that this ruling makes it unlikely that preventative detention orders can go ahead. But in the ruling, it does very clearly say that if people break the law again, or if a third party option comes up, then they could find themselves in immigration detention again, but it's just not for an indefinite time. And Shalila, someone big in Parliament has announced that they're quitting politics after a long time. Well-respected politician Pat Dodson, what's happened there? 
Yeah, so Pat Dodson is known as the father of reconciliation. He's also been described today as a living treasure. He's been a senator for WA since 2016, but he worked in reconciliation and advocacy for Aboriginal people for decades beforehand. He's a very, very well-known figure in that space. But unfortunately, he has recently had some bouts of bad health. He was undergoing cancer treatment, um, and he has said today that basically his health at the age of 75 means that he isn't able to do the job in the way that he would like. So he is hanging up his boots. He's retiring from politics on January the 21st. He most recently took up a position in the government as special envoy for reconciliation. He was a really big figure when it came to designing the the voice to parliament. And he told reporters today that he feels a sense of regret that he didn't achieve that. I, I do come, I do leave this place with some sense of sorrow in that um, as a nation we were not able to, uh, to respond positively to the referendum because I think that would have helped our country. Yeah, a lot of people paying tribute to uh, Pat Dodson and his work. Hack political reporter Shalala Madora, thank you very much for updating us. You're very welcome. Hack, you haven't been a real teacher for even a year yet. No, he has not. On Triple J. Did you ever think about becoming a teacher? When you ask young people when they're really young, maybe starting high school, what do you become? A lot of them say, I want to be a teacher. If you did think about it, but then decided not to do it, what was it that turned you off? Maybe it was the stories of being massively overworked and underpaid, or maybe it was the branding of teachers. You didn't like what you saw on screens. Because there's been a big push from the federal government to rebrand teachers. A big ad campaign was launched recently focusing on how inspiring teachers can be to young people to try and get more people into teaching jobs. Because teachers aren't always portrayed this way in a really inspiring way, especially in movies or on TV. Hack. You know what's weird about your quizzes, Katie, is that all the work is right and just the answers are wrong. Really? Really. Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. Who's got food in here? You're not going to get in, Travel. I'm hungry. You wouldn't come to work hungover unless you were an alcoholic. Freddie Jones, shut up. Did I hear that right, that you were showing movies all last week? Some clips, maybe. But you know, in a lot of ways, I think that movies are the new books. Uh-huh. On Triple Jack. Yeah. Bit of a taste there of how teachers have been portrayed on the screens over the years. Sure, you've got a lot more examples. You've got people messaging in about this one. Someone says, I'm a pre-service secondary teacher, always wanted to teach. Nobody's made me reconsider teaching as a career more than teachers themselves. I've had so many current and former teachers tell me it isn't worth it. Somebody else says, no, teachers literally just need to be paid a lot more money, along with the nurses and the rest of our key essential workers. You get absolutely nothing. And someone else says, I was once told I don't respect teachers. Why would you put that much time and effort into something that you don't, you get paid so little to do? I'm a teacher and I was on a date. There's a general lack of respect for teachers in society. That's someone's comment there. Well, look, I'm getting into this because there was some research out recently that I found really interesting. It was into the negative portrayal of teachers on screen. I want to find out more with someone who's done this research. Dr. Hugh Gundlach is from the University of Melbourne. He's been looking into it and he's with us now. G'day, Hugh. Thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure. Thanks so much. What have you found about the way teachers are presented to us on screen? Well, um, I just loved all the, the you know, excerpts from those films and texts that you, you'd chosen because um, it really showcases the full range that we see. So we have different 
you know, tropes or character archetypes that we see with teachers being portrayed as either sort of losers, like losers in a way that they're trying hard and they care about their students, but they're still portrayed in a loser type way. So Ms. Norbury from the Mean Girls excerpt that you had there, um, if you remember in the film that the students see her working a second job and she's dressed in a dorky way. And that's, that's sort of one of the things, uh, another one with a recent one with um, Matthew Perry portraying a real teacher. Um, he's, he's a truly inspirational teacher. Ron Clark is this American teacher he portrays, but this teacher goes well beyond um, you know, professional responsibilities where it all almost becomes a bit too, um, you know, awkward that, what, you should have your own life. Like, why is this teacher doing all this stuff for the kids? Don't they have something else to, to go home to that they would do all that extra effort? So they're some of the tropes. Then we see um, Cameron Diaz in Bad Teacher. It's the, you know, as, we, as the name suggests, the bad teacher. Lazy, incompetent, doesn't care about the kids, is only doing the job because uh, couldn't get another job or is trying to just make, you know, a bit of money. And then Jack Black um, in School of Rock, is the sort of burnout teacher. And he actually isn't, as probably your audience know, he hasn't even qualified. He's impersonating his uh, roommate, Mr. Schneebly. But it's, again, it's this burnout kind of thing that it's something you do if you've failed in other aspects of life or you couldn't make it in any other kind of career. You can turn to teaching. You can fall back to teaching. So there's three major tropes that your excerpts have already demonstrated really well. Well, I wonder, like, why did you decide to do this research? Do you think it's actually having an impact on people wanting to get into this profession? Mm. So I think um, looking over time at the portrayal of teachers in uh, film and television, what I just have noticed anecdotally by being interested in in film and television and, and being interested in teaching was that it's been a long time since we've had a really inspirational teacher on film. And then when I looked at some of those previous examples from other decades and I look at them with a modern lens of what the teacher candidates who I teach, um, you know, teaching them to become teachers, they are held to a much, much higher standard than these so-called inspirational teachers on film because your John Keating from Dead Poets Society um, or Luanne Johnson from Dangerous Minds, if you look at them by Australian teaching standards and modern standards, they're not very good at all. Like they do inspire the kids in some ways, but they don't teach the curriculum. They don't know the curriculum. They use coercive rewards they, they do tend to have classrooms that are teacher-focused. So it's sort of like, look at me while I inspire you rather than having the students <laughs> do some work, which is what teachers should be doing. I've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I started teaching years ago and I'm counting down the days to retirement. Someone else says, I've always wanted to be a teacher, but the salary is just so low. That's what's keeping me out. That was from Amy and Nam. And another person says, lol, it was my mum, who's now a principal, who told me not to go into teaching and I saw it. She was a single mum of two, was doing 35 plus hours of overtime every single week because that's how much work teachers need to do. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr. Hugh Gundlach from the University of Melbourne about, you know, the brand that exists around teachers, how they've been portrayed on screens, uh, in movies, on TV shows over the years, the negative ways, often portrayed as losers, really, um, or really incompetent or whatever it is, and if that could be affecting people wanting to get into this industry. 
you, I guess it's hard because, like, the government's just put out this new advertising campaign that's supposed to change the narrative in terms of how teachers are betrayed. It's showing them as really inspiring. Some have criticised that, saying, well, look, it's hard because it's not actually all that it's portrayed there. It's, uh, it's actually a lot tougher and that's not an accurate depiction either. Yes, so I, I think that's that's a fair claim and it's, it's really difficult because you don't really want to show in an advertising campaign the negative aspects of a job. That's, that's obviously <laughs> it's not something you want to do. But um, I think that the ad campaign is quite good in that it's showing a diversity of oh, we're actually going to lose Hugh there just because that line is a bit dodgy. So we're going to try and get Hugh back. Um, but we've got so many messages coming through about uh, people's, you know, the betrayals of teachers that they're happy with. Someone says, Miss Honey from Matilda, Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society. They were amazing. Uh, another person says, uh, disagree. I think the respect for teachers rose in response to homeschooling during COVID. That was from Danny. Uh, we've got Sarah on the line from Melbourne. Sarah, what do you think about all this? What's your opinion? Um, I uh, changed careers and I, turned, I, I became a teacher after studying something else. And I, was, I just texted through saying, um, even today, I had students telling me, why bother? Why, why become a teacher? Um, you know, a lot of students have the sentiment that we're wasting our time here that smart people should go get jobs somewhere else. So that's really sad to hear when you're, you're doing your best as a teacher. And how do you respond to that? I just explained that my job is to help you be the best you can be and, and go out in society and make a real positive difference and that's what keeps us going and that's important work. They seem to understand, but generally I feel a lot of people just think that teaching is something you do if you don't know what else you're going to do. Yeah, there's definitely that thought out there. Um, have you regretted your decision to become a teacher, Sarah? Obviously, it sounds like, you know, you're really enjoying it. You got into it for all the good reasons. I actually love being a teacher and my passion is um, to mentor other teachers so that we have a really strong, supportive and positive profession. So that's the difference that I can make. But yeah, I know a lot of teachers are definitely questioning if it's worth it, if that's the sort of sentiment we're getting each day. Yeah, Sarah, there's a lot on the text line right now that are asking those questions. Hey, I appreciate you calling in uh, with your take on all of that. I'm going to go back to Dr. Hugh Gundlach from the University of Melbourne. Line was a bit dodgy. Sorry, Hugh, cut out before. No um, you were answering the question about the federal government's campaign to really change the, I don't know, messaging around teaching to really elevate the way we look at teachers in society. And some people were saying some of the stuff they're seeing on this ad campaign doesn't seem too realistic. What do you think? Yeah, so I think it's good that it's got the diversity of teachers. We've got diversity of ethnicity, gender, age, and it's showing the long-term impact that teachers can have. But perhaps with that particular creative style of having the museum museum exhibits and some of those things, you know, they do acknowledge the real nature of teaching where the student's written a letter saying, thanks so much, but sorry, I was such a pain in class. You know, it's not showing what's in the classroom, but that's you know, a bit of creative license. So I think it's also handy because it's saying to people who are currently in teaching, do stay in there, people appreciate you, maybe just not right away. 
Do you think that we uh, really need to be focusing on uh, how to rebrand teachers in other ways, like not just this advertising campaign, but, you know, do you have any ideas of how we might elevate that role in society? Yeah, sure. There's probably two main things I can think of um, from what's come about in research. One would be salary. And that's that's the million dollar question. That's what's, because, that's what's coming yeah, through loud and clear yeah, on the text line Because too. people tend to respect highly high salaried professions. Um, lawyers, doctors, sports people, movie stars, reality TV people, that they in big bucks. And so teaching doesn't currently have that reputation. And the second would be, you know, really, I think parents are influencing how their kids feel about teachers as well there's definitely a change over time yeah with respect for teachers and a lack of respect coming from home sometimes yeah we've definitely uh, a lot of thoughts on this one coming through the text line we appreciate your take on it dr hugh gundlach from the university of melbourne thank you very much for coming on my pleasure Thank thank you hack on triple j and that's all we've got time for on the hack podcast for now i'll catch you next time